All right. Thank you, Maria. It's always awesome to hear stories of redemption. Amen. And God has done a mighty work in many of you and in doing a mighty work in Miss Maria. I've really enjoyed getting to just talk to her and talk through things and, and really uh, flesh things out. Uh, many times we assume a lot of things and uh, that we know a lot of things. And I think her story is not necessarily unique to her only. I think many can attest to something, to being one thing on a Sunday morning and another thing at home, uh, or maybe not truly grasping the forgiveness and grace that is ours in Christ. Amen. And so as we kind of transition to Exodus, thank you again, Maria. Thank you. Uh, as we transition to Exodus, uh, this is a very fitting, uh, important story of redemption. Uh, before I get into that, just a few things. One, many of you have asked, with Election Day coming up Tuesday, about my sermon uh, that I preached a few weeks ago on Christianity and politics, or Christians and politics. Uh, it wasn't up for a while. It is now available on the website. So if you want to check that out, kahaluibaptist.org, then go check that out, and it's there. You'll see it there now. Uh, the second thing is while Election Day is Tuesday, Veterans Day is also coming up this week. Veterans Day, what is that? That is a day to commemorate all those who have fought in any war uh, in the history, really, of the U.S. It actually started at the end of World War I, but uh, this year particularly is, Uncle Bill, please correct me if I'm wrong here, the 50th anniversary of the first day of the Vietnam War, or those who first went into combat. Uh, and so the Lord is doing a massive work of redemption, not only among us, but among those who have been in wars, who have been victim of wars, who have been affected by wars. God is doing a massive work of redemption, and we don't want to forget about them. I believe the statistic given at some point, was it 21 a day suicide? 22 a day. Uh, 22 veterans a day uh, commit suicide on average in the U.S., and so there is still massive work of redemption to be done, and the hope of the gospel speaks very, very pointedly into all pain and holds out hope to all peoples. And so can we just give a round of, let me just see it by a show, we'll do a show of hands. Uh, anybody, veteran combat, combat veteran in the U.S. military here, raise your hand, please, hi, so we can see you. Hi, hi, all right, give them a round of applause, yes, thank you. Thank you, thank you for your service. I am a MK, uh, military child, military kid, so I grew up in that lifestyle. So it is a sacrifice. It really is a sacrifice. Men leaving uh, and sometimes not seeing their family for a whole year and then leaving again and then a year, and it's, it's just, it is a sacrifice. So we thank you for your service uh, on behalf of our country. Today is also another special day, and it just coincided with the beginning of Exodus, and I'm very excited, I'm very thankful. Today uh, is actually the marking, the end of my full third year as pastor of Kahalui Baptist Church. So, uh, yes, thank you guys. No, thank you. You guys have made it a joy and a privilege. It is a joy and a privilege to, to truly serve you and to pour out our lives for the sake of the body of Christ uh, and to see the gospel advance in your life. So thank you guys. We love you. I mean that. When we love you, we pray for you. I pray through the member directory every day, all the time. Uh, not like 
every one of you every day. It's like five of you a day, okay? So, but uh, it's constantly going through and lifting you guys up in prayer uh, before the Lord. And so I just want you to know we love you. We really, really care for you. Uh, when you hurt, we hurt. When you rejoice, we rejoice, and, and it is just a loving thing. One of the things that I've seen happen over uh, my three years is you guys are actually raising the bar for me uh, as a pastor and as a teacher because some of you, and this wasn't, I praise God for this, now it's starting to happen more and more. Some, some of you, many of you, are, are actually reading the passage ahead of time before I preach on it, and you're, you're studying the passage ahead of time before I preach on it, and then you're, you're kind of checking me with other things. And by the way, I really thank you for that. Praise God. That's the way it should be. I, I give God great uh, glory for that because that's exactly what you should do. The Bereans searched the Scriptures daily to see whether the things that Paul was teaching them were so. And it actually creates not this... Uh, uh, not a suspicious type teaching, but a trusting, loving that you're receiving the word uh, for what it really is, as the word of God. And that is something to be praised. And it creates a relationship between member and pastor that we are always sharpening one another. Praise God. And we get to grow together. So uh, it has been, it truly has been a joy of mine these three years. And I am looking forward to year four to see God is doing a massive awesome work here, uh, and I'm excited to be a part of it with you. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Exodus. Exodus. This is phase two and part two. Phase two, uh, I said John. Our, our first phase, if you will, part one was John, and I told you back then that John was kind of like Iron Man, right? Iron Man is the first movie of Marvel, and they would later release more and more, and it was the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and they were all kind of intertwined and interlocking, right? You had Captain America, and then you had right, the Incredible Hulk, and, and all these different characters, and they all came together as the Avengers right? And you're like, whoa, that's so awesome. And I'm, I'm showing my age, okay? So um, that's, that's kind of what we said, John, the, for John 1 through 12. We covered John 1 through 12. That was kind of phase one. Now this is phase two. This is Exodus. And what we're going to try and do in essence is weave together the narratives of John's gospel with Exodus, all right? That's what we're trying to do. And the hope here, my hope, is to paint a biblical backdrop, a biblical backdrop that's going to give you guys a greater depth and vision of the cross work of Christ. So when we get to John, the, the book of glory, the second half of John, 13 through the end, when we get there, my hope is that you're going to have this massive scriptural Old Testament backdrop to see the sacrifice of Christ and say, oh, praise God. Praise God, maybe in ways that you've never seen it before. So that's, that's my hope. So it's only fitting then that as we finish the first half of John, and we referred to the first half, right? John has two, two main sections. The first half, does anybody remember what it's called? The book of? I'm kidding. The book of signs, right? The book of signs, because John records all of his signs, all of the miracles of Jesus in his first half, uh, seven of them, from 1 through 12. And so it's only fitting that as we wrap up the book of signs in the New Testament, that we go back now to another 
book of signs, if you will, in Exodus. That will, this, this book, this locus, uh, 1 through 19, contains more signs and the most important signs than almost any other period prior to the time of Christ. And so it's only fitting that now we find ourselves in Exodus. Now, Exodus is phase two of what we're hoping to do, but it's actually part two. This is my intro to Exodus, all right? So if you're wondering, I'm giving you an intro to Exodus, an overview, if you will. Exodus is really part two of a five-volume set that we call the Pentateuch. So say that. Say Pentateuch. Don't you feel so smart now? You're just, ah, just smart, right? What does Pentateuch mean? It literally means five books, five books. It's the five books of Moses. They, comp- they consist of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, that's where most of you stop your yearly through the Bible reading plans, all right? Leviticus, if you made it through Leviticus, Numbers will finish you off. Uh, And then if you made it through Numbers, then Deuteronomy, you're toast, all right? You're just done, right? That's the five layers of of Bible reading plan, right? It's the first, this is uh, the second of five, right? And those together, if you're a Jew, you would refer to that whole thing as the Torah or the law. The first five books of the Bible, okay? That's what we're in. So we're actually in part two. Part one, we did last year. Who was here for Genesis? The whole thing. January 1st, 2015 to the end. You were here for the whole thing. Raise your hand so we can see what. All right, check it out. Who was not here for Genesis? Many, many, all right? Who was here for some of Genesis? You, you came in in 2015? All right, so more of you, all right? So you guys got, we, went, we took a whole year, 2015 in January, running all the way through December, and we went through the book of Genesis. Now, when I first announced that I was going to spend a whole year in Genesis, some of your eyes looked like dinner plates. Like, what? You were kind of scared, kind of nervous. I was too, right? I never, you never heard of anybody doing that. I'd never heard of anybody doing that. And I actually had many people come to me and say, I've never heard Genesis taught straight through in their entire lives. And subsequently, it actually became my favorite preaching series so far. It was, it was just amazing. What we did is we went through Genesis, and Jesus said in John 5.46, he says this. He says that Moses wrote of me. He said that Moses wrote of me. And so what we did when we went through Genesis, because I don't remember, and you might be able to correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't remember going through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five books of Moses, and ever seeing Jesus' name in there. I don't ever see, remember seeing, oh, oh, by the way, this is about Jesus, right? You don't, that's not in there. It's not in there. But yet Jesus says, Moses wrote of me. And so what we did for a whole year is we went through portion by portion, section by section in Genesis to see where's Jesus here? Where is he? And so, that's what we hope to do with Exodus, the same thing. We're going to ask, where is Jesus in Exodus? The word Exodus literally means exit. It's hard, right? Exodus. It's an exit or a departure. That's what it means. It's God's people exiting or departing from Egypt. So here's my hope and prayer, that this series, this time of the year, will leave you in awe and wonder at God's working in your life and in his actions across time and across history. Uh, And it's all going to wrap together with Christmas and Easter very nicely. Uh, So I think you're going to really be blessed by all of that. So let's pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. It truly is sufficient. You have granted to us all things 
concerning life and godliness in it. And so may we read it, may we understand it by your Spirit, and may we apply it to our lives and see that you too are working in us uh, a greater act of redemption than even what we see in this amazing narrative of the Exodus. And so I pray that Christ would get much glory this morning, that you would be exalted and honored in Jesus' name. Amen. I have two plans. I actually have two plans, two points. I have two points this morning. I had three, but last week you guys got a long sermon, all right? So uh, this week I'll try and keep it reasonable, all right? So two points. God's plan is unfolding, or God's plan unfolding, Exodus 1, 1 through 7, and then we'll move on, and we won't get to the last portion of 15 through 21, but we'll get God's plan unfolding is the first point. Now, The Exodus, you have to give this context, all right? This whole book, this whole storyline in front of us is the, the focal point, the highlight of redemptive history in the Old Testament. What you're about to see as we unfold this is the highlight reel, the knockout punch, the, the main focal point of God's redemptive workings in the Old Testament, such that D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, he said this, it is the greatest redemptive event in the Old Testament. Another scholar put it this way, a complete understanding of the gospel requires a knowledge of the exodus. A complete understanding of the gospel requires a knowledge of of the Exodus. So think about this. Your understanding of the gospel. What do you know about it? What do you think about it? If you had to define it, how would you define it? If you had to give it historical context, what historical context would you give it? A complete understanding of the gospel requires a knowledge of the Exodus. That is a big statement to make. Now, it's not saying an understanding. A child can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he's saying a complete, a full-orbed knowledge, comprehension, grasp of the gospel requires knowledge of this book, the Exodus. For contemporary illustration or comparison today... You could say, uh, I forget who just said this, uh, D.A. Carson, maybe, I don't know, somebody, Tony Ranke. You could say, we went to li- we, today we live a cross-centered life, right? We look back at the most important redemptive event in all of history, which is what? The cross work of Christ as shorthand for his death, burial, and resurrection. We look back at the cross. We aim to be cross-centered in our lives, cross-centered in our days, uh, to, to look forward to the hope of what Christ did on the cross for our, on our behalf, and so we aim to be cross-centered, or you'll hear us say gospel-centered. That's another way of kind of getting that same idea. We want to be a gospel-centered church, gospel-centered people, gospel-centered at work, gospel-centered everything, right? Now, if you're going to go Old Testament, you want to look back. Back then, they would have lived an Exodus-centered life. That's how important this was. They would have lived an Exodus-centered synagogue. They wanted that this was the focal point for them. This was the defining moment in their history that identified them as a people. Their purchase and redemption from slavery out of Egypt by God Almighty. Is that important? And it was this point that they would look back to over and over and over 
and over again in the Old Testament. All throughout the Psalms, you can read this, Psalm 105, 106, Psalm 77, 78, many other Psalms, you can just go on and on. The Psalms are always talking about the Exodus. They're looking back, they're recounting the Exodus. They're singing about this, they're praying about this. The prophets, both major and minor prophets, are all talking and looking back to Exodus. In the time of the exile and the restoration with Nahum, Nehemiah, all these guys, they looked back at this time of the Exodus as a reference point. It came up over and over again, this theme of God's mighty deliverance on behalf of his people all throughout the Old Testament. So as we work through this and get back into John, I think you'll see things you've never seen before. They're going to just blow your mind. They're just going to blow your mind. Your minds are going to be a by the end of this, all right? As we get through this and give you this backdrop, we have a lot of new believers a lot of young believers, a lot of people who've never really read through the Old Testament. We're Gentiles, right? We like New Testament. We're, we're not Jews by, by birth. So, so this is a lot of, of foreign ground for us. And so I think as we go through this, you'll find not only your understanding and worship of God enhanced, but your understanding of all of Scriptures enhanced, an appreciation for their breadth and depth as one story of God. So, seeing as this is part two, following part one, which is Genesis, Genesis means beginnings or origins, right? There's the prequel, if you will. That was part one. This story actually begins in Genesis as well. This opening section in verses one through seven, that list of Jacob's 12 sons is significant. And it harkens us back to the end of Genesis. Actually, you don't get this in your English version, but in Hebrew, if you were to read this in Hebrew, the very first word of Exodus starts with and. And. Who starts a book with and? Exodus starts a book with and. Why? Because it's part two. So let's go back, actually. Let's go to Genesis. Flip over the pages in your Bible or click over, whatever you want to do, uh, and go to Genesis 50. That's the end. And we're going to see how it kind of flows together. We're going to read it briefly. Now, as you're turning and clicking there, remember, the end of Genesis has uh, his brothers, Joseph, Israel, the patriarch, and his 12 sons, and then his brothers uh, kind of gang, gang up on baby brother Joseph, the favorite. They sell him into slavery. He goes into Egypt as a slave and later is exalted through miraculous providential circumstances. He is exalted to second in command, right-hand man of Pharaoh, and he ends up, Joseph, in an ironic twist of events, ends up being the one to deliver his own brothers and family in a time of famine. And that was just one of my favorite series, starting in Genesis 36 to the end, uh, about the life of Joseph and how Jesus is the greater Joseph who, who stands on behalf of his brothers and delivers them and grants them life, even though they deserve death and plotted to kill him. Amazing, amazing story. But we come to the end of that now, and now everybody's kind of happily ever after, right? They gave the, the end of, this is what happened to this guy, right? Everybody's happy. Uh, now Israel died, the patriarch died, and now the brothers are thinking, oh, snap, Joseph was just being nice to us because dad was alive. Now that dad's dead, is he going to, like, off with our heads, right? So that's what they're wondering, Genesis 22, or sorry, Genesis 50, verse 22 says this, so Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. 
The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. Get this, with Exodus, right? Those who know the plot line, right? I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now note the irony at chapter 1 that actually the men who sold their baby brother as a slave will eventually have their families enslaved in Egypt. Ironic. This book is full of irony, twists, plot twists, and twists again, and right when you think you got it, oh, another twist. And, and so here we see Joseph closing out Genesis with words of faith, God will visit you. God is going to come. He is going to pull you out of Egypt. You're not meant to be in Egypt. And then the act of faith, and when you do, swear to me that you will not let my bones be buried here. I want to be in the land that God has for me. So Joseph dies with a word of faith and an act of faith, trusting that God would not forget his promises made to Abraham. Now, speaking of Abraham, this character is huge, massively important. I said when we preached on Genesis 12, three, not one, not two, but three major world religions claim Abraham as their father, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Major players in our world today, massive impact in contemporary events. So going back to Abraham, this actually starts in Genesis 12 with the first promise of God to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. That's important. You should write that reference down and highlight it, circle it, and star it because it it just continues to unfold over and over. It's repeated then in Genesis 15. So God gives it initially in Genesis 12. He re-gives it in Genesis 15, and this is what it says. Note the connection to Exodus. It's all related. This is long before it happened, okay? Long, long before any of this happened. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now we'll talk about that last phrase another day in the future, all right? It's significant. But uh, suffice it to say for now, long before Joseph, long before he was even an apple of his daddy's eye, long before any of that, God tells Father Abraham, three generations before Israel, before Joseph, God tells Abraham, your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs for 400 years. So what we see in Exodus is Genesis, promise made, Exodus, promise unfolding and being kept. God is going to affect his plan. He has not forgotten about his people. So essentially, God was using Egypt, we could say, as a type of incubator for his people. It's a type of incubator for his people. His people went into Egypt as a family. They'd enter as a family and they would emerge as a nation. 
starting to fulfill God's promises to Abraham. So when Genesis records the creation of the world, Exodus records the creation of a nation, Israel, the people of God. They are forged in the land of Egypt. Now, what's encouraging about all this so far? You're like, this is cool background history, Pastor. Thank you so much. It is important. It is very important. But you want to know, how does this connect with me right now? Because I got problems. Here you go. First off, God's plan is unfolding, beloved. He is not slow to fulfill his promises. 400 years as a slaves in Egypt. They were thinking, where is God? And God is thinking, right on time. Ding, there it goes. God's plan is unfolding. That plan is to redeem the fallen human race. Men of every tribe, tongue, people in color. He promised this way back in Genesis 3, echoed in 12, 15, 46, and many other places, that he will send the seed of a woman to crush the head of the serpent. And that promise will come to pass. Now, what's encouraging about that is that he is using, right at the outset of Exodus, a very messed up family, a tribe of misfits, to bring his promises to pass. The sons of Israel? Really? I mean, ancient Near East idol? I mean, isn't there better contestants to use than the sons of Israel? They're rapists, murderers, incest. All of it is found. Betrayal. Is, uh, if you remember our Genesis sermon series, the 12 sons of Israel were messed up. So twisted, very twisted, worse than probably any reality TV show on the set today, including that naked one. And it was twisted. It was very twisted. You're like, how do you know about a naked one? I don't. I don't know its name. There you go. See? You guys are judging me. <laughs> He's using a messed up family. Now, you may think that your life is too messed up to warrant a deliverance from a good and holy God. You're sitting here and you're like, Pastor, I'm just so broken. I'm so uh, messed up. I, I, you don't know my life, the inner workings of my dark heart and the things I do when nobody's there. Uh, I don't even know that a good and holy God would want to deliver me. Look at the story of Israel. Look at the story of his sons right at the outset of Exodus. And this reminds us that God's redemption doesn't depend on our character but on his. Not on our goodness, but on his goodness, his kindness, his faithfulness. Verse 6 of chapter 1 reminds us that the curse of death is still in effect from Genesis 3. And, that gener and Joseph died, and all that generation with him, right? You remember Genesis, the reframe, and they lived however many years and died. They lived however many years and died and died and died. That curse is in full effect. And then verse 7 really gets into the unfolding of God's plan. Verse 7, note the repetition and connection of the creation mandate. You remember the creation mandate? He created them male and female and said, be fruitful and what? Multiply. Now notice the repetition here as God is building his people. Exodus 1-7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied. And grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So you start to see, as, as God intended in his original creation mandate for his people to go forth and be fruitful and multiply and take dominion, now he is going to start to use his people, this nation that he's forging in Egypt, 
to be fruitful and multiply and bring, a, bring to pass his purposes and plan. His plan is unfolding. Part two, point two, Pharaoh's plan, on the other hand, is collapsing. Pharaoh's plan is collapsing. Exodus 1, 8 through 14. Verse 8, we see this. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Get that. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, if you're to read through this, you're going to see how the text describes the Egyptian slavery as really brutal. And actually, history verifies this. The, the Egyptians were not known for being kind to their slaves. I don't know that any world uh, peoples who have slaves were known for this, but they definitely were not known for their, their kindness, their gentle, gentleness to slavery, to slaves. Their slavery was brutal. And then... Out of this slavery, the reason for the slavery, the pretext given by Pharaoh for why they enslaved Hebrews, what was it? What was the pretext given? Why is he going to all of a sudden now enslave these people who have been with him for 400 years peacefully? Fear. That was the pretext. Fear. The threats of a possible immigrant uprising as a pretext to persecute and enslave minorities. One pastor said this, blaming things on ethnic minorities is always convenient because racism is part of our sinful human nature. Now, if we were to meditate on here long, you'd probably see some convicting parallels to today, no doubt. Blaming things on minorities is always convenient because racism is part of our sinful human nature. The threat of possible immigrant uprising was used to persecute and enslave them. We'll move on. This was a brutal slavery. It's described with seven terms, and actually you'll see this occur in Exodus a few times. Anytime he describes something important, he, he uses seven terms, a, a group of seven to kind of heap up words to show it. So he's doing this here. It describes it as afflicting them with heavy burdens, oppression, ruthless, bitter. It, the, the picture is not, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. The intent of it as Pharaoh thought, was hopefully to keep them from multiplying, right? That's what he said, lest they multiply. The reasoning goes like this, well, let's afflict them with hard work. Let's make them tired. Let's make them work brutally. And if their uh, energy is being spent working hard all day, all night, doing all these things, if they're constantly working, 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 then at the end of the day, they're not going to have any time for... Young ears, extracurricular activities. Retired, all right? Retired. And that was the thinking. We'll do this lest they multiply. But that wasn't the case. That wasn't the case. Didn't stop him from doing it. Actually, verse 12 says, the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied. This is God working. How's that happen? These, these Hebrews are more vigorous than the Egyptian women. You see the tongue-in-cheek here. The, the Hebrew midwives are kind of joking, kind of giving little jabs at Pharaoh in their answer. You know, Hebrew women, they're a little bit more vigorous than you Egyptians. The more they oppressed him, the more they multiplied. How does this encourage us today? 
Be mindful of this, beloved. Satan's tactics haven't changed. He always operates in this manner against God's people. Uh, One Puritan said this, If Satan cannot carry a soul laughing to hell, think about that. If Satan cannot carry a soul laughing to hell, then he will endeavor to make him go mourning to heaven. And he will endeavor to make him go mourning to heaven. Essentially, God's people, if I can't afflict them and stomp them out, then I'm going to make their life as miserable as I can possibly make it on their way to heaven. Does that match your life, maybe? You came to Christ thinking, man, I want, I want freedom, and all of a sudden you find that circumstances actually seem to get harder? That persecution seems to amp up a little bit? That sorrows increase? Satan's tactics truly haven't changed. He still attempts to oppress God's people. Now, the good part of verse 12 is the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Two practical takeaways here. Two practical takeaways. Number one, just as we saw in verse 8, there was a new king in Egypt, and that new king gave them bitter slavery and harsh service. So the first practical takeaway, any king in your life, Get this, any king in your life other than the Lord Jesus Christ will always result in a cycle of bitter oppression and harsh slavery. Any king you set up, any functional authority in your heart, and I don't mean like you're going to go like, hey, you know, Wes, you're my king now, so I'm going to worship. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about a physical king. I'm not talking about even our election season, all right? I'm not talking about that. Any functional desire that you set up in your life that becomes your guiding, overarching purpose in life will always result in a cycle of oppression and bitter and harsh and ruthless and just sour slavery. Money. Let's use that for example. Man, I just want to be rich. I just want to be a millionaire. I want to be rich. And so you start to work to make money, and then you buy things because you love money, and you love what money can, can grant you, the power it can grant you. So you buy things. You get a new house, new car, uh, new, new phone, new this, new that, new that. And, and all of a sudden now you have debt, and you start to work more, but you, you find you can't ever pay down that debt, and you're now a slave to the very things you own. And what happens is you have to work, and you have to work overtime and overtime and more time, and it ends up taking you away from the most important things in life, like the kingdom of God and loving your family and loving your wife and all these things and it's a bitter oppression and harsh slavery and now you can't even stop it even if you tried. Any king you set up in your life with functional authority will always result in this. Relationships. Some men, some women just want to be accepted by somebody of the opposite sex. I want that acceptance. There could be any number of reasons for this in the past. But if you make that your guiding king then you will find that whoever you set your heart on, your affections on, that man or that woman, will never be able to live up to the expectations that you have of them to satisfy you. And you're going to have this broken relationship where you are irritated with them, you're impatient with them, they're irritated back at you, the relationship's not working out, and it's going to break down inevitably. And you might find yourself surrounded in your life with a trail of broken relationships. Because you're setting your affections that were meant only for God 
on this man or this woman. We can go into each and every one of these, right? Just keep going. Authority or power. Maybe I want to be powerful. I want to be recognized. I want to be the the shot caller, right? Or you want praise of men. You just want people to think well of you, to think that you're a good, decent, hardworking man or woman. And when they don't praise you for it, when they don't recognize it the way you think they should, you brutally oppress them. Maybe with words, gossip behind their back, maybe with uh, lashing out at them directly, uh, maybe blowing up. Fear, worry, anxiety, all of these things, any king in your life other than God will result in bitter and harsh slavery. It's one practical takeaway. Second thing you could ask, why would God send his people to Egypt for deliverance from famine, only to have them enslaved for 400 years afterwards? What type of plan is that? Can I get a different plan? How about deliverance from Egypt apart from slavery? Why do I need slavery to do that? You see what I'm saying? Here's some answers. After he brought them into Egypt with Joseph and delivered them from famine, it's a highly likely possibility, and you can attest this with your own experience, that, hey, life in Egypt is nice. It's good. I like the delicacies of Egypt. But God didn't promise them the goods of Egypt. He didn't promise them the land of Egypt. He had a land far better for them. Egypt was good, but the promised land that he had for them, his purpose for them was far better. But yet, they are in Egypt, and they're they're kind of liking life in Goshen. It's nice here, good neighborhood. Good people in the neighborhood, not a whole bunch of, you know, Amorites running around cutting chickens' heads off and stuff. The Egyptians are pretty good people. I could live here forever. I think I could retire next to this pyramid. That's not what God promised them. So know this, beloved. Many times, maybe this is you, we settle for good things in the world and pass up the best things that God has for us. We settle for the temporal delicacies and pass up the eternal banquet that is set before us. God's purposes and His promises are always, always, always better than the pleasures of Egypt. What in your life are you satisfied with that's just good, but you're missing out on what God's promised you? Another pastor answered it this way. As for why they were afflicted in Egypt with slavery for 400 years. He said this, In order to cut loose the bonds that bound them to Egypt, the sharp knife of affliction must be used. And Pharaoh, though he didn't know it, was God's instrument in weaning them from the Egyptian world and helping them as his church or his people to take up their separate place in the wilderness and receive the portion which God had appointed for them. In essence, the, the pleasures of Egypt, God used the pain of slavery to wean them off of Egypt, to make them loathe their, their estate so that they might long for God's deliverance, which otherwise they might never have longed for. So what in your life today are you a slave to? How might God be using that loathsome experience to drive you to long for freedom that only he can provide. Only he can provide. Slavery is bitter. 
Sin is bitter, but forgiveness and freedom are both better and sweeter. Now, this theme of freedom, of rescue, is massive in Exodus. So let me ask you in closing, where are you in the flow of this text? And the narrative, where does your story intersect their story? Some of you are in the beginning, and you're like the sons of Israel. You're like, dude, I am messed up. My life is just a mess. It's in shambles. It's, it's turmoil all around, chaos. You hide it here, but you know everything is in turmoil around you. You're wondering if God would rescue you or should rescue you. You wonder at God's timing and question His goodness. That's some of you. Others in here, you're feeling the bitter oppression of harsh the bitter oppression of harsh slavery. You're feeling the the bitter taste of of bitterness itself, or of a grudge, or of relational abuse, or drug addiction, or guilt over certain sources, uh, choices you've made, and things that don't seem to go your way, or how you had hoped them, and you start to feel like you're a slave, and your shackles are invisible. Nobody can see you but you. Nobody can see them but you. You wonder if God can or will set you free. This causes you to question God's power and his promises. In both cases, whatever you are, whatever you are, know this, our God is a God who rescues and delivers. Our God is a God who breaks the chains of slavery. John 8, 34 and 36. You can already start to see the overlap here. You can already start to see the overlap here. In John 8, the context is he's actually referring back to this time. And this is what he says. Truly, truly, Jesus says this. I say to you, everyone who practices sin is what? A slave to sin. Verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Beloved, our God is a God who will move mountains, split seas, and conquer death to rescue his people. If you'll trust Him today, if you'll believe in Him today, if you'll turn from your sin today and trust Him, I promise you this, He will set you free. Will you do that today, this morning? I pray you will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, the exodus that records how your plan is unfolding and how even the worst plans of men are collapsing against your people. We thank you that you are a God whose timing is always perfect you never forget your people in slavery or, or pain, but yet you deliver us in it and through it, and by it you make us more and more like Christ. And so may we receive your plans with thanksgiving and faith. We ask that you do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our time of response, I think we're going to go straight into the offering. Uh, our time of response is going to be uh, our Lord's Supper time. So as we sing... May you praise God, and then I'll come back up and lead in the Lord's Supper. Thank you.